0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Exodus 12. Exodus 12. He set the stage again for us here. At the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph has made arrangements for his brothers and his father to relocate from Canaan to Egypt. That is the beginning of how um, Israel, first of all, moves from becoming the name of an individual to the name of a nation. Recall that Joseph's father Jacob had a wrestling match with God, after which God renames him Israel. So Israel and his sons relocate to Egypt. Fast forward 400 years, and Israel has gone from being the name of an individual man to the name of an entire nation, a populous nation that some scholars estimate were as many as 2 million living in the land of Goshen inside the Egyptian empire. That's the historical context for um, where we are at in the story. There's another context, though, that we need to... uh, to uh, look at in order to make sense of of the text in front of us. And uh, and that is the spiritual context for the people of Israel. This populous nation of two million, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, does not know God. God has been silent for 400 years. They do not know God. How do we know this? Three details very quickly. First, God's name is conspicuously absent in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. From chapter 3 to the end of the book, it's absolutely everywhere. So the first two chapters stick out like a sore thumb because God is nowhere mentioned. Second little detail in 3.14, chapter 3.14, Moses asks God for his name. He's not being cute. He's not being coy. He's not playing games. He genuinely does not know. And the third little detail is Pharaoh's question in chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? He also doesn't know. So Exodus begins with an apparent universal ignorance of God's name. Picture being an Israelite. The Egyptians have made your life hard. It's been filled with harsh labor, oppressive treatment. God is unknown to you until some incredible events begin happening around Egypt. All these plagues that he unleashes. And this is your first experience of this God. He's introducing himself to you. Now, all this has been dramatic to watch, but to this point, none of it has directly impacted you. These plagues were unleashed on the Egyptians only. You have been spared, but now a final plague looms on the horizon, and this one's going to impact you. You're about to be freed from your life of harsh labor and oppressive treatment, but before that happens, you're going to discover some things about this God, and you're going to discover some things about you. Now, why is God doing it this way? Why is he doing all of this? Actually, we're given a neat and tidy answer in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Let me read that. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. God is going to free them from their yoke of slavery, the, the, the oppressive treatment, the, the, the difficulty they've had living in Egypt. But once He has freed them, He's not going to detach from them and turn them loose to live however they like. God says, "I will take you as my own people and I will be your God." So God is saying to them, before any of that happens, I need to show you some truths about me and about you. I need to show you some things about you, about me, some theological realities that you're going to need to learn to embrace, believe, and act upon if you're going to experience freedom and live as my people. So let's pick up the story in chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share it with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without (laughs) defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats." Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with, uh, with bitter herbs and with bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, with your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Flip over to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. God is revealing some theological truths, some theological realities to the people of Israel that they're going to need to embrace, believe, and act upon if they're not just going to be freed from their slavery, but if they're going to live as God's people. So, in effect, for our modern time, what this text is showing us is what it means to be a Christian. In the book of Exodus, God is doing evangelism. He is making himself known to a people who do not know him. He's doing evangelism. And in order to do this evangelism with this people group, he has to show them some things, he has to teach them some things. And he does it through three pictures. God provides us with three pictures that point to represent some theological truths or realities that the people of Israel are going to need to embrace if they are going to be his people. Okay, we're going to look at each of these three pictures. And we're going to see what truths or what theological realities the pictures are conveying to us. Okay, here are the three pictures. We're going to look at the picture of the firstborn... We're going to look at the picture of blood, and we're going to look at the picture of a date, a calendar. Three pictures, firstborn, blood, and a date. They help us understand what it means to be a Christian. First picture, firstborn. At midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn in Egypt. Whenever you're reading stories in the Old Testament, it's important to try to transport yourself into the minds, the shoes, the lives of people living there. I can't imagine what this would have been like. The terror that swept through the land that night. Wailing, echoing through the darkness as parents awake to the death of their eldest born sons. God is doing evangelism. One of the very first impressions God makes on Israel is that he is a judge. He's a judge. 400 years of silence, and God comes on the scene as a judge. Now, this picture of the firstborn is showing us a couple of theological truths, realities that we need to embrace, believe, and act upon if we're going to be his people. And the first theological reality, the first truth that the picture of the firstborn communicates to us is the notion of justice. Now, keep in mind the death of Egypt's firstborn sons has not occurred in a vacuum. Egypt has been warned nine times through nine plagues previous to this one that they must stop their oppression and let Israel go. God is slow to act out the full extent of his justice, he's very patient. But he also won't look the other way. Now, the picture of the slaughter of the firstborn is offensive to modern people in developed countries. Many say and, and look at that and, and say, well, why can't God just let it go? Why can't he just wish it away? Let me try to illustrate why it's not possible to just let it go. Um why wrongdoing always involves a debt. Say you have someone over for dinner, and uh, while you're dining together, one of your guests accidentally breaks one of your very valuable china dishes. The moment the dish has been broken, a debt has been incurred. And there are only two possible outcomes to this. The first is that your guest at a cost to him or herself replaces the dish that is the one who committed the wrong pays the debt the other outcome is that you don't make your guest replace the dish instead you either live without it or you replace the dish yourself either way you bear the cost that is to forgive When your guest breaks your china dish, there's only two possible outcomes, and both involve paying a debt. They pay the debt, or you pay the debt. The debt can't just be wished away. Change the illustration a little bit. What if someone deeply wrongs you? Maybe someone tarnishes your reputation, cutting you up with their tongue. Likewise, a debt has been incurred, and there are only two possible outcomes, One way is to make the person who hurts you pay the debt. How do we do that? Retaliation. Right? They cut you up with their tongue, you cut them up with your tongue. Or we cut them up by cutting them off. We dissolve the relationship. That's one way to respond to it. The other way to pay the debt when someone tarnishes your reputation is not to make them pay. Which is to forgive But when you forgive, what happens? You pay the debt yourself. You bear the cost of the loss of reputation. Either way, the debt can't just be wished away. The same is true of God. The Egyptians have incurred a debt through their unjust treatment of Israel and their refusal to obey God. That debt can't just be willed away. It must be paid. In the Egyptians' case because of their refusal to change course the debt they have incurred will be paid themselves through the lives of their firstborn sons embracing the theological reality of justice is necessary in genuine christianity if you want part of if you want any part of christianity the notion of a god who judges must be embraced and believed now there's a second aspect to the firstborn picture that conveys a theori- theological reality and that's the theological reality of non exemption There's justice and non-exemption. Now, there's a significant change that occurs with the final plague, the plague of the firstborn. The nine previous plagues fell on the Egyptians only. And I'm sure you all remember the order of the plagues, right? You all remember the order. Be forever grateful for lasagna, because haggis looks definitely disgusting. you want to remember the order of the plagues, there it is. Be forever grateful for lasagna because haggis looks definitely disgusting. You all remember that. These nine plagues fell on the Egyptians' cattle only. Israel's lived. When God rained down hailstones on Egypt, he sheltered Israel. When, when Egypt fumbled about in palpable darkness, Israel was given light. Israel didn't have to do a thing. They didn't have to lift a finger to receive this benefit. However, with the final plague, something changes. It's going to encompass everyone, Egyptian and Israelite. Why is Israel not exempt from this in the same way they were exempt from the others? God is doing evangelism. He's introducing himself to the people of Israel. He needs them to see some things. He needs them to believe some things. He needs them to become aware of some things. So put yourself in an Israelite shoe. You have seen God unleash nine previous plagues in the Egyptians. And you know why it's happened. God, through Moses, has been very communicative with you about all the stuff that's been transpiring and why. This happened to Egypt because they have been oppressive and they have refused to let you go free. The plagues on Egypt have been God's judgment on them for their evil and hard-heartedness. Now, God is saying the final judgment isn't destined for Egypt alone, but you too. God is showing you something. He's showing you you have something in common with them. Though you have been oppressed, though you have been abused, you still have a problem. More specifically, you have an evil and hard-heartedness problem. You are no better than anybody else. The theological reality of non-exemption speaks, and it says... We are worse than we thought we were. Karl Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi lieutenant colonel. Due to his talents and his loyalty to the Nazi ideal, he was put in charge of facilitating and managing the logistics for mass deportation of the Jews to ghettos and extermination camps in Nazi-occupied Eastern Europe. Eichmann was the brains behind the Holocaust. After the war, he was captured by Israeli agents in Argentina, and he was tried in Israeli court on 15 criminal charges, including crimes against humanity and war crimes. He was convicted and hanged in 1962. Yehiel Danur was a Holocaust survivor. He spent two years in Auschwitz and was a witness in Eichmann's trial. During an interview on 60 Minutes, Mike Wallace showed DeNewer a film clip. The clip was of DeNewer walking into the courtroom for the very first time at Eichmann's trial. DeNewer entered the room. He looked at Eichmann very briefly, then began to weep uncontrollably and then fainted. It was an incredibly dramatic scene. The people were panicked. The judge was pounding the gavel, trying to bring the court to order. The room was filled with emotional intensity. When the clip was over, Wallace asked Denure about that scene. He asked him, what did you feel at that moment? What overwhelmed you? Was it hatred for this man who had killed so many of your family members and friends? Or was it fear just being in the presence of such an evil and wicked person? What did you feel? DeNuer responded and said, no, none of that. This is what he said. When I walked in and I saw him, I suddenly realized he was no demon or superman. He was an ordinary human being exactly like me, and suddenly I became terrified about myself because I saw I was capable of the exact same things. Do you believe you are too? You believe you're capable of the things Eichmann did? The Bible tells us we are. The corrupt root inside the Egyptians, inside Eichmann, resides within every one of us. Genuine Christianity embraces the theological reality of non exemption. That is, we are all more sinful, flawed, and messed up than we can possibly imagine. picture of the firstborn shows us Egyptian, Israel, all of humanity. We all have a debt we've incurred. And the debt can't just be wished away. It has to be paid. In Israel's case, the debt will be paid through a substitute. A lamb. But in every house in Egypt that night, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. Second picture, briefly, the picture of blood You read this. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. On that night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. What is the blood accomplishing? Let's eliminate the ridiculous first. Okay? This is not science fiction. The blood does not create an impenetrable fortress around the house that makes it impossible for God to get through and strike down the firstborn. Now, God could have struck down the firstborn even in those homes that had the blood if he wanted to. It's not a question of ability. So, what does the blood do? It's not a protectionary agent. What does the blood do? It does something relationally between the household and God. It moves the relationship from judgment to peace. Why? Why does the blood on the doorframe move the relationship from judgment to peace? What does the blood on the doorframe demonstrate? What does it signify? The family inside has listened to God, has trusted what God has said, and has put their faith in God's means of salvation, the blood of the Lamb. If the God of the Bible is going to be your God and you're going to belong to him, we too have to put blood on our doorframes. We have to listen, we have to trust what he says, and most definitively, we have to put our faith in God's means of salvation, the blood of the lamb. It's the only requirement in order for the relationship to move from judgment to peace. But it has nothing to do with the intensity, the depth, the sincerity, the clarity of your faith. I heard a conference speaker illustrate it this way. He said, imagine two Jews By the names of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names, in the early evening hours before the first Passover, having a conversation in the land of Goshen. And Smith says to Brown, Boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, Well, God told us what to do through Moses. You don't, you don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and taken the blood and put it around the door frame of your home and had the meal and you're packed and ready? To, I mean, haven't you done all that? And Smith says, well, of course I have. I'm not stupid. But it's still scary. When you think about all that's been happening around here lately, blood, flies, gnats, frogs and now the threat of, of losing my firstborn son you have three sons I only have the one Charlie and I love Charlie I don't know what I would do if I lost him I'll tell you what I'll be glad when this night is over Brown says bring it on I trust the promises of God That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? The answer, of course, is neither. Neither. Death does not pass over on the ground of the clarity or the intensity of the faith exercise. Death passes over on the ground of the shed blood of the Lamb. That's what silences the accuser. It has nothing to do with how much passion you have in your belief in Jesus. It's got nothing to do with that. The accuser is silenced in the object of your faith this is what it means to be a Christian. Whether you're more like Smith or Brown in the end doesn't matter. All that matters is have you had faith in God's provision of a substitute, the shed blood of the Lamb? The third picture is a date. Again, in the beginning of chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month, is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. I don't know the exact nature of calendar-keeping Israel would have had during those 430 years in Egypt. But whatever they had, God is dismantling it, and he's establishing a new one in effect, God is saying, I don't care what date you think it is, we are starting something different, something new. From now on, this month, the month of the Passover, the month of the Exodus, is going to be the first month in the calendar. This is a new beginning. This is your new frame of reference. This is your new starting point. And this Passover day will be a day you commemorate for generations to come. In other words, the Passover was to become the epicenter of their existence. What took place with the death of the firstborn, the death of the lamb, the blood on the doorframe, the freeing from slavery, people becoming the people of God, was meant to be thought about, talked about, pondered, and reenact often. In other words, it was to become their identity. By becoming the starting place in their calendar, a day commemorated often, God is showing them what ought to captivate their imaginations. What their minds ought to drift back to again and again. Now in the New Testament, on the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus ate a Passover meal with his disciples. A meal we reenact every time we partake of communion. If Jesus' meal with his disciples on the eve of his death is a reenactment of the Passover meal, what is Jesus saying about the next day? the day of his crucifixion. It's the exodus. It's the exodus. It's the true and better exodus. And if God is saying to Israel, the Passover and exodus are meant to be the epicenter of their existence, what is Jesus saying to us about what he accomplished in the cross for us? About the gospel itself. God is showing us that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the truth you need to believe in order to be saved and then you move on to other doctrines. It's the truth you need to think about, talk about, ponder, and reenact often in order to live as a child of God. It is the gospel that ought to captivate our imaginations. So does it? does it? Let me ask you a question to see if it does or not. Who are you? Who are you? If your first instinct is to answer that question by saying, I'm a mother. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a physician. I'm a nurse. I'm an architect. I'm a custodian. I'm I'm an accountant. I'm an administrative assistant to answer the question like that is tantamount to an Israelite answering that question with, I am a slave. Because before the Passover, that's all they could say they were. There wasn't anything else. They had no other identity. See, if you believe the core of your identity is the role you play at home in your career or in your hobbies or your causes... You are a slave. You're going to fumble about in restlessness until you get a new calendar. Less than a year ago, in an interview with Esquire magazine, Paul McCartney, the legendary artist of the Beatles and beyond, was asked if he felt he still had something to prove. This is what he said. Yeah. All the time. And it is a silly feeling. I do actually sometimes talk to myself and say, wait a minute, look at this little mountain of achievements. There's an awful lot of them. Isn't that enough? But maybe I could do it a little bit better. Maybe I could write something that's just more relevant or new. And that, and that always drags you forward. I mean, I never felt like, oh... I did good nobody does even at the height of the Beatles I prefer to think there's something I'm not doing quite right so I'm constantly working on it I always was we always were I mean look at John Lennon a mass of paranoia and worries about whether he's doing it right you only have to listen to his lyrics I think that's just artists in general it's not just artists in general it's human beings in general. What is McCartney saying is his Passover and Exodus? What does he think releases him from bondage and gives him freedom? His accomplishments. The next hit song will be his Passover. If we could listen to the thoughts in his head, the main theme we'd hear is what song can I write that's new and relevant? through the Passover and the gospel itself, God is saying the thoughts you hear ought to be what he has done to become your God. The sacrificial lamb of God is supposed to be the repeated theme, reverberating through the inner recesses of your being. Only when the gospel becomes the first month in your calendar and the day you commemorate off Will you find contentment? Only when the gospel has captivated your imagination will you find freedom and rest and satisfaction. It's the only way. Let's pray. Gracious God, we need a fresh vision. For the magnitude of the gospel. We drift towards gospel myopia and as a result suffer because of it. God, give us wisdom and discernment to spot the gospel's competitors who clamor for our allegiance. They tend to be sleek and shiny, but they are counterfeits will repeatedly fail to deliver on what they allegedly promise. God, so many of us need a new calendar. With the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus being the first month and day we think about, talk about, ponder, and reenact often. So God, with a new year in front of us, I pray that you would do that work in us. That somehow, which each morning when we get out of our beds, that we would let our minds drift back to who we really are. We are your people who have been brought to you through the shed blood of the Lamb. That's who we are. pray that you would remind us of that in our closing moments together here this morning. To the glory of Christ we pray these things. Amen.